All right, let's talk about uh, what are we doing? What's Movies. We do a podcast. Did you know about this? Have you heard about this? No. I thought this was just our weekly hang. Have you been editing this down into a podcast every week? <laughs> no, in fact, you have. <laughs> ah. But uh, so this is a podcast, um, the name of which is uh, Project A Plus, uh, mostly because we couldn't think of a better one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, after the. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, Jackie Chan's series of movies of the same name. I'm Hunter. I'm Pew. Okay, so what uh, what movies are we doing on this year podcast today? We will be covering another Netflix original project featuring. Is it, is it two Netflix original projects? Yes, it is actually. Well, I don't. I don't know. Was um, like I said, I don't. I, the the difference is pretty pretty meaningless. So so the night comes for us was in. Was in pre-production for a while. Well, it was a screenplay initially, and then it got turned into a graphic novel, right? Yeah. So Timo uh, Jahento is the director, and he wrote a screenplay for this film. I think he was conceiving it as part of a trilogy of films, mm. and then the funding got withdrawn, and he turned the screenplay into a graphic novel, and then Netflix stepped in and offered them some money. Oh, did they? So they actually funded the production to some degree. Yeah, they did. Okay. Yeah, according to an interview I saw. I didn't know that. I thought it was. Uh, I thought it was picked up after the fact. Well, it was. It would have been. It maybe it wasn't necessarily entirely funded by Netflix, but they stepped in. Yeah, they it. helped. They, I mean, they definitely like distributed it. Distributed it. Um, yeah. So that's what happened with that. And uh, High Flying Bird is, is yeah just a straight up Netflix project. I mean, according to this article, they didn't pick up the rights until several months after it was finished, after the after shooting. Yeah, like, he actually made the film, and then they said, we'll buy it. Yeah, but, I mean, I think, I think they're in his next film, which is also coming out this year, is going to be fully theirs. Okay. But that's, the, that's true for most films that are distributed that aren't, like, mega blockbusters anyway, so, you know. Yeah. They all get have really crazy production companies, and the film is often credited as belonging to the company that distributes it, so... But anyway, so The Night Comes for Us and High Flying Bird. Those are the two films we'll be covering. Yeah, and we'll explain them in more detail in turn during our peerless analysis. Yes, peerless is how I describe this podcast. Which one would you like to talk about first? I have no preference. Which film would you like to talk about first? Which film did you like better? We'll do it like that. No, 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 because that's going to be a surprise that'll come at Uh, the end of our discussion. That's not true. (laughs) Or at the start of our discussion. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever we do. After we've, like, rambled through the plot. I was gonna... <laughs> I'm gonna do a random number generator. If it's one, we'll do, uh... High Flying Bird. If it's two, we'll do, uh... Then it comes for us, okay? Deal. Alright. Uh, it was one, High Flying Bird. <laughs> Alright, Okay. So, let's talk about High Flying Bird, the newest uh, Steven Soderbergh project. Um, about basketball players yes let's do that yeah let's do it right now high flying bird this guy's self-assured like Stephen Soderbergh so high flying bird is a film about basketball players uh, who are being walked out of the league is that right that's right you, I assume you paid more attention than I did I mean, I was a bit lost, to be honest. Uh, I don't follow basketball at all, so I was kind of lost as well. Um, so, so 
it's sort of one of those films where it doesn't matter that much if you understand the exact details or not. Although it kind of feels like you should understand it as you're going through. Yeah. But yeah, there, there, there are films of this type that are very like hyper-specific to a particular realm. That just featured a lot of people like talking on cell phones and stuff and, and, and saying things you sort of half understand. And you can kind of just follow it and it doesn't yeah. really matter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like what this film is. For us, I mean, I'm sure if you were more keyed into basketball, it would make... Maybe it would, maybe it would even be a better... Maybe it would have more resonance, but... Maybe. It's totally watchable to someone who doesn't watch basketball or know anything about it. That's what I'm trying to say. As best as I could understand it, there's a lockout happening, which is some sort of dispute between the Players Association, the collective that represents the NBA players. Yes. And, uh, I don't know, the NBA itself about wages or compensation or whatever, or whatever the contract is that governs these players. I think it's the, um, yeah, the percentage of profit versus or versus what the owners are making for the players and the what the players are receiving in comp- compensation to that profit. Yeah. And we're focusing on Andre Holland, of course, the actor playing a character called Ray Burke, mm-hmm. um, who is an agent working for an agency who represents <laughs> players. Wow, that was, that was a really well-constructed uh, sentence. Thank you. And uh, particularly his interactions with an up-and-coming player mm-hmm. uh, called Eric Scott. Was that the player's name? Yeah. Yep, that's his name. Uh, played by Melvin Gregg, who doesn't have his own Wikipedia page, unlike everyone else in this movie. Essen- essentially what it uh, amounts to is that Ray Burke is trying to find a way to end this lockout. And the way he does that is by opening up the possibility of having alternative basketball matches staged on like social media or streaming on Netflix itself, as they mentioned at one point. Yeah, another like digital um, streaming in a way that like goes around the the owner's contacts with the players regarding like their images and stuff like that. Is that the plot? Was that what happened? Yeah, that's basically the meat of it. Well, actually, we should probably, like, we've missed, like, the whole selling point of this film. Oh, yeah, I guess so. So, in the wake of uh, Unsane, Mm -hmm. which was famously uh, Soderbergh's uh, first experiment into, first experiment with filming a film in... (laughs) (laughs) Please please continue. (laughs) Wait, so you filmed a a film? (laughs) That's a good start. It's the first (laughs) film that was shot on an iPhone. That's what you're trying to say. Yeah, that's the one. Jesus Christ. Wow, um, you really struggled yeah. to get there. So uh, after his, uh, I guess, positive experience with filming Unseen with an iPhone. Yes. For the most part. Yes. He has repeated the same trick here with High Flying Bird. Mm-hmm. And he has said that he will never shoot on anything other than an iPhone again. But let's see how. But I sincerely doubt it. <laughs> but... Um, he also said he's going to never make a film again. Remember, not yeah, and he's made several. Um, what'd you think? What did I think? Yeah, what did you think in your brain? I, I've realized I might have a bit of an issue with Mr. Soderbergh. Um, I haven't really gone back and revisited his so-called classics for a long time, so I can't really speak to them that uh, effectively at this stage. But what I've noticed seeing film after film from this person is someone some I kind of respect... Uh, uh, him on a craft level mm-hmm. and I particularly Im- admire his willingness to embrace new technology like this and his sort of pragmatic 
approach to shooting films. Um, he's, he doesn't seem to strike me as someone who's very precious. Right? No. So I, I kind of appreciate what he represents in that sense. And uh, he has good craft. But I kind of feel a little bit empty after watching a lot of his films. Um, like I've kind of like, oh, yeah, that was quite satisfying, but it doesn't really go beyond that for me. So like the last bunch of films I, w- I would have seen uh, that he made, uh, if you can reel off some of them to help me remember, but um, Luck- uh, Logan Lucky. Lucky oh, Logan. I, I really, really liked Logan Lucky, actually. Which I thought was enjoyable enough. I watched it on a plane, but it, like... It didn't go beyond that for me. I was like, yeah, that was fine. Pretty forgettable. You know, I, I really liked that movie, like, a lot. Like, it was one of my favorite movies that came out um, in the year it came out, I think. And the other one that jumps to mind in, in a similar vein was The Informant, mm. which was like, oh, this is, I guess, relatively enjoyable, but then it didn't really seem to amount to anything I would ever bother to see again or remember. I don't think, I've, I, I don't think there's been a single one of his films that I've seen that I've had a negative experience of. But nor have I had a hugely positive experience going. That was like a really great film. I love that film. So you just sort of he's like middling to you. Yeah. And that that includes things like Sex Lies and Videotape. But I mean I saw that years ago, so I have no idea if uh, my impression held any water. But um, even out of sight and stuff, which which is it gets a lot of retrospective praise. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe maybe I would enjoy that if I saw that again. But I remember at the time just being like, Yeah, that was fine. And that's, that's basically what I respond to with Soderbergh. Okay, then. How about you? Well, um, I think I think I'm warmer than you are. But I also haven't watched in general, nearly yeah. as many. Yeah, just in general. I, I, I run hot, as they say. Um, but I uh, I don't know. Like I, I haven't watched nearly as many films as, of his as you have. And I think I, the most I know him best for is probably the films that um, the general public knows him best for, which is The Ocean's. Trilogy, which I um, I really liked the first two of those movies, and the third one I thought is is pretty bad. Um, but I don't know. <laughs> I do want to see um, uh, what's it called, Schizopolis. Oh, I've seen that actually. What's that like? Um, I watched it when I was like sixteen or seventeen, so I don't have like a greatest impression, but it, it's very enjoyable. I mean, he's pretty much just like throwing spaghetti at the wall, <laughs> um, but. There is some like weird pleasure to be found in it for sure, and I like one thing I do really like about him is that his films um almost ever uh, overstay their welcome. <laughs> no, that's true. I mean, that's 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 another part of his output that I respect. Like he doesn't again, he's not precious with that kind of thing. It's like get let's just get let's tell the story, let's get in and out. That's it. Yeah. Um, I just compare the running time of like his Solaris, which is only like ninety minutes, to like <laughs> Tartowski's, for instance. Mm. But um, I I quite enjoyed it. Um, and also, I guess I've seen more films than I, of his than I think I have, but I think he is a very, if I'm gonna, if, if he directs a movie that is, like, um, designated as, like, an entertainment, I think he's one of the best filmmakers at making it sort of, like, um, mid-level, like, action or, or heist film. Um, and I think that's primarily what I've responded to his, but I have, again, I haven't seen, like, a lot, a lot some of his, like, you know, artier films. Like, I've never seen, like, Che or, um, I don't know, like, The Girlfriend Experience or stuff like that. So, maybe my opinion of him would would shift. Um, but I think I found this film to be um, very enjoyable overall. So, I mean, to pick up on the on the our struggle to kind of uh, synopsize this film. Yeah. I mean, I only half understood what was going on. 
And by the end, it was kind of like, okay, this guy did something clever and it solved things. Okay, I, I kind of get it. But Yeah. But I mean, I think there's um, a, a deeper, like, political and emotional resonance to it than just, oh, clever guy did something clever. It actually reminded me a hell of a lot of uh, Margin Call, um, which I know you haven't seen. as very similar because that felt like a low-budget film with a glittering star cast, like, working at scale or something because they wanted to support the project or because they knew the director or writer. I think there's some connection there. Uh-huh. And this felt similar because, obviously, it's shot on an iPhone, so there is a, a, a low-budget feel, and it's, like, confined to you know, relatively cheap locations, I would say. Yeah, yeah. And um, But, you know, everyone is, like, a known member. I mean, there's a lot of uh, stars. I mean, but it's not, there's not, like huge stars in this though no i mean like not i mean not necessarily stars but like known yeah property but i mean like i feel like margin call is like has a much more starry cast than this does oh yeah 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 that, that that's exacerbated in that film and also of course zachary quinto himself yeah he's in both although he's probably a smaller name at the time of margin call yeah but i mean he's like barely in this movie <laughs> like yeah but that's what i mean like like even like really little parts yeah Sure. Um, like Carl McLaughlin in this. Yeah, and uh, like Bill Duke too. Yeah, but I mean, again, I feel like those are people who are like pretty well. Like I don't, I don't know if they needed to like pay them any more or less. I mean, they all feel like like working actors, you know. They're just like no, names. but I mean, you do get that sense of like, um, you get that weird disconnect between. It feels like it could be a really low budget thing, but then you have all these known actors in it. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. But I mean, it that still means it's like, you can still make a low budget film with known actors, like. Yeah. But the the other thing that um, reminds me of Margin Call is is essentially it's a lot of people like in office buildings and stuff and talking on phones about something important that you kind of half grasp. Sure. And then it, you kind of get an idea of what's happening and something happens and it ends. <laughs> it's a little reductive. But it had the same kind of vibe. Well, maybe uh, if you hadn't about... seen Margin Call, it would have made more of an impression on you. Maybe. No, I'm not saying it, it was. I'm not, I'm not saying Margin Call is an amazing film. Yeah. It's, it's moderately enjoyable, but it's about, it's the same kind of thing. It, it, this, this has a probably better social consciousness, I would say, yeah. than Margin Call. But I, I don't know. I think there's like a lot of, um, I don't know. Like for me, like one of the things that really works about this film is that you could really feel Soderbergh taking pleasure in the actions that the character is performing too, you know? Mm. And I feel like that sort of like tracks, like, because this movie is all about like, this this the agent played by uh, Andre Holland, who's like the lead character, like trying to work this lockout to his advantage and try to end it as quickly as possible by manipulating the system. And I feel like that's like there's a lot of like traces of Soderbergh in that role, you know? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, because he's someone who like is both has had a very like, long career both in independent films and in Hollywood. And I don't know, like I feel like there's a lot of. Um, tracking that can be done with that but it, de- it definitely isn't like it doesn't feel like a naked like artist portrait either though no no because it feels very grounded to the world that it's in as well but i think it's like um really attributable to the the script which is written by uh terrell alvin mcnary yeah mcnary mccarney yes who uh is probably most famous for writing the play on which and the like the story on which uh, moonlight was based yes um and I can de- you can definitely like feel, but I mean, there's just so much like pleasurable dialogue in this too, though I think. And Andre Holland was in Moonlight, wasn't he? He was, yeah. Yeah. So, and he was also on. I mean, but the, but the the Soderbergh connection is that he was on the Nick, 
which is this TV series. Oh, he was too, yeah. I've actually seen yeah, like some of the Nick. I really like it, actually. Never I, think I watched the that... first episode of it didn't, uh, and didn't watch it I think... Uh, I mean, I've got... me too. <laughs> <laughs> I liked the first episode. I kept on meaning to go back, but uh, I never did, so... <laughs> I could watch... Me too, yeah. I, I was like, this, this, this seems... Good, and I think that's that's kind of a project that seemed really well suited to Soderbergh. Well, people really love that show. He seems made for that kind of television. Yeah, his approach. Um, and if you if you hear the stories of him, of the way he produced that show, it's really interesting as well. And he obviously filmed it all himself most of the time. Yeah, I mean, but that's what's interesting about Soderbergh too is that oftentimes he works as his own editor and like um, cinematographer as well. And on uh, Schizopolis, his own composer. That's funny. But uh, when we say, like, he shot this, uh, we mean, like, he literally shot it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so just like just like Clint Eastwood, he he has a lot of roles that he felt, fulfills. He gives himself pseudonyms, though. So the cinematography yeah. was done under Peter Andrews, and the editing was done under Mary Ann Bernard. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty funny stuff. Which I guess is like a, a union thing, right? I, I assume so. I don't know. I really don't understand. Because there's all these how... funny governance laws about um, how you. That sounds like such a nightmare. I mean, I get like why it's in place, you know, to make sure that people get their profit credits. But like at the same time, like if you want to do something that's like a little bit uh, out there, it's it seems like it's pretty tough to navigate like the union spaces and actually like get what you want out of it. Yeah, fuck unions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what we're trying to say. <laughs> we're definitely we're definitely a left show, but we hate unions. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so to make sure. What did you think of the the choice to like um, interpolate footage of like interviews with uh, actual basketball players into the into the film? I thought that added nothing. Really, particularly. That's interesting. To this, to be honest, mm-hmm. um, I could see it working. Maybe, uh, like I, I wasn't necessarily. I didn't necessarily object to that approach, mm-hmm. and it was sort of some of it was interesting, but. I don't think the film would have lost anything if you took them out. I, I don't know. I thought they were kind of like... I think they had... I mean, it helped ground the film, certainly. Did we sufficiently explain what they what we're talking about? Well, so, um, the way the film... It's it's sort of... You know, it's this, it's this fictional narrative. Um, but uh, every, like, 50 minutes or so, there are interviews with actual basketball players that have been edited in, which are shot in, like, monochromatic black and white. Yeah. Um, and let me just... I'll just, I'll just read them off. It's, it, 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 the basketball players are Reggie Jackson, uh, Carol Anthony Towns, and Donovan Mitchell. Uh, but, yeah, it's sort of to, to wins... Um, I mean, but I guess in a, in a way it sort of helps to get at... Because one of the central characters, um, Eric Scott, like the rookie that we mentioned, he... Uh, I guess it helps, like, sort of, I don't know, get into his headspace a little bit, you know? Mm. Like, you, you can see that the those interviews add um, the perspective, because the film is, you know, it's it's very much told through the, the for the most part, through the perspective of the, the main guy. Um, and so I, I feel like you could argue that those add, like, perspective that otherwise would be absent from the film as written. But I don't know. Like the player's perspective, I mean specifically. The main, the main thing was every time I was watching one of those segments, mm-hmm. the, the the only thing I was really thinking about was is Soderbergh like standing on a high chair and they're <laughs> looking up at him to do the interview. No, no, Soderbergh's actually like nine foot feet tall. 
He just wanted to emasculate basketball playing. Yeah, he was like, <laughs> my movie is all about um, uh, showing that that African American basketball players can can take their image and the and making money to into their own hands. But what I, in these interview segments, I really want to <laughs> make sure that I, the white man, are in the full locus of power. Right? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> um. But so we talked about the 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 starry cast. Did you did you think that they all gave, or because I I thought the performances like pretty uniform. We were all very um you know decent and fit the yeah material. I enjoyed I enjoyed the performances. I think I think Bill Duke especially is really great as um this sort of old school manager of a Bronx like community um, basketball court. <laughs> this is a great yeah, scene very... where he gives like this speech. <laughs> and I definitely think um, Andre Holland carries the film. Yeah. It's a shame he's not in more things. He's really talented. And Deadpool 2 Zazie Beats, <laughs> as I'm sure she want to be referred to. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that'll go on her tombstone. Yeah. Um, she's good. I don't think her character gets that much to doing this, but um, I think she's always a good presence. Yeah, but the, the end scene with her and um, yeah, Andre Holland is really good, I think. And I really like... I don't know, like, I, I really enjoy narratives between men and women that aren't just, like, romantic pairings. <laughs> mm. And I, I do like that the idiot, it's sort of, like, um, it ex- explains why she would put herself in, in that, like, position. to Because she's, she's an assistant to, to Andre Holland, I guess we should make that clear. But at the end, it's sort of revealed that uh, she's using it for her own ends, really. <laughs> um, and I don't know, I, I like that part of it. First impressions of this aesthetic, aesthetic uh, is that some of the shots do look good. It definitely looks like it was shot on an iPhone. It's not necessarily disguised. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it's not. It's, yeah, it's not trying to appear as a shot like, on like a, a DSLR uh, film camera or anything. It definitely looks like an iPhone. But no, clearly, there's a crew. Clearly, that and I yeah. mean, it's worth saying it's not just an iPhone. No, it's like the it's like the most expensive iPhone that you can purchase with all like these. And it's also it's also been fitted with a uh, whims too. Yeah, all the all the accessories. Yeah. Um. So it wouldn't end up being like that cheap. No. I mean, certainly in comparison. I mean, to, uh, I think it would uh, be cheap, but yeah, I don't I don't know. <laughs> if you see the scale of film cameras, it's definitely on the way less expensive end. I think like uh, it all yeah, like yeah. I read somewhere that he paid like two thousand dollars for the phone and the equipment. So I don't know. The thing that, that can have a really big impact, I think, on uh, the production values of a piece of cinema is the sound. Yeah. And obviously this has, as, as best as I could tell, a standard professional sound recording and mixing. Yeah, I... I which elevates... Couldn't tell. It, it, it takes care of a lot of that sheen of a, of a professional production if the sound is, is really slick and well mixed. Yeah. It wasn't necessarily an experiment in how cheaply I can do a film. It was more so. No, I mean it's not. A, it's not a film. It's it's just. Can I make a film that seems like an actual film using an iPhone? <laughs> yeah, I mean the the reason he he chose it initially for Unsane was I mean it suited the material, and it also allowed him to put the camera in places that it would be impossible to mount a full sized DSLR or whatever. Yeah, I mean, and especially in regard to the cost. Uh, of that yeah well you could theoretically mount a dslr anywhere you just need to you know like have enough money to properly mount it and do enough space and stuff like that 
I mean, same same here, I assume. Like, there's a lot yeah. of shots that I assume would cost way more if you should eat them on a, like, professional-grade camera than on an iPhone. So the aesthetic of this, like, it looks... I actually liked the aesthetic quite a lot. Me too. Um, including the obvious images that weren't the sort of high-grade quality that you would have got in the equivalent yeah, sure. proper camera. Sure. Like, you see some funny sort of faded shadows and yeah stuff. like the and i think of the lighting in the zachary quinto office scenes especially that's the ones that like bring to my own or brought to my mind immediately yeah where they're basically like they're kind of really dark yeah and dim and they, they're very strange lighting that feels very uh off to like a film this period yeah and i i i liked all of that i thought it actually worked really well and this was a and it really it really fits the material too to a degree because mm. i mean this film is all about how digital technology is allowing uh or it, it can be used to push away the system which has kept you know like african-american athletes from um making it uh, uh, the money that uh, seems commiserate to the work that they're putting in and stuff like that yeah that actually extends your metaphor for soderbergh um, yeah quite nicely as well because obviously the the game changer in this is the social media new technology yeah it's it's literally like using an iphone to film <laughs> Uh, a basketball game. And that, that is funny because, yeah, one of the core sequences of this film is the fact that uh, a, a basketball game, a sort of impromptu sort of grudge match between uh, a couple of rival basketball players happens and is filmed on an iPhone. So you see, like, some footage of one of the, you know, ancillary school, school children characters filming this match, which I kind of thought was funny in the context of this film. So you're watching... An iPhone, something they were shot on an iPhone, watching someone shoot something on another iPhone, essentially. And you get sequences. Uh, I think most note the most notable sequence um, in which I really felt this is uh, a, a scene between uh, Andre Holland and Sonia Son, uh, who plays a character called Myra. He's the head of the Players Association. Who works for the Players Association? Yeah. And um, they're having like a discussion in a bar at one point mm. and Soderbergh has just stuck the phone on the bar looking up at them and you get this weird intimacy that you that is usually removed from professional productions by the layers of crew and the pragmatics of the camera and, and whatever has, has to be done and the lighting whatever yeah um and it, and it feels it it's jarring because it, it it reminds you of stuff that people do shit on phones of their friends and whatever yeah and for sure photos taken from that angle and it actually gives those sort of scenes of vibrancy yeah it was quite quite well done i think and yeah i i especially like um in the sequence that we talked about a bit where uh at the end of the film where he meets with zazie beats for the last time or zazie beats his character rather i, I thought it was sort of similar effect with that too I mean, it really worked for the emotional moment of that that sequence as well for me, anyway. Um, but again, it, he, I think someone like Soderbergh is a really smart craftsman, and he'll know how to use that to his advantage. But I, I, I do think it, I do think it really allows him to like. There's a shot of um, Bill Duke and Andre Holland where Andre Holland is just like idly shooting baskets, mm. and it's filmed in like this 360 degree like uh, shot, which is like, I mean, it feels like. I don't know, like, when you watch it, you're just thinking about how much how much freedom he is allowed to express using something that's so lightweight, which is stuff that people have said a lot, a lot about digital cameras in general, but um, I don't know, like, there's something about the, 
that shot in particular, I was like, wow, like, I, I'm just thinking about how much coordination and, like, rehearsal that would have taken if you were shooting on, like, a film camera or a, or even, like, a, a high-end digital camera. And you can just, like, sort of, you just sort of can do it on an iPhone, and it looks really good. I don't know. And he does some cute transitions, like, um, pulling the camera back so it faces the ceiling and then dropping it down on a new scene. Yeah. For sure. And that sort of thing would have taken like a second to do and it's it's really effective. And there's a few transitions like that where it's really close to someone's back and then it pulls back and you're in a different scene. And so, yeah. Um, so I, I, I'd really be interested in seeing someone um, who would even ramp that up to the next level, like, uh, like one of those hyperkinetic directors like Edgar Wright or something, or even someone doing an action film along the lines of the next one we'll talk about, I think would be quite interesting with that. Maybe we should just do all... All movies on iPhones from now on. Oh, wait. Let's just say I recommend High Flying Bird. Great stuff. Would you also recommend it? Uh, yeah, I recommend, uh, especially in, I think it's actually a good film in the context of Netflix itself. I'd say it's probably uh, the best one we've watched. I mean, I guess I don't want to have spoil my feelings towards uh, The Night Comes for Us, but. It's, it's certainly, yeah. It's, it's certainly, certainly better than ever any other film that we've watched in other it's in podcasts. A different category. Yeah. It's not like, I don't feel like Steven Soderbergh has been compromised. No. <laughs> yeah, they haven't taken, it is, like, like how they ruined, like, Jake Dreamus, for instance. Yeah, exactly. The great Jake Dreamus. <laughs> I guess Amazon technically ruined him, but, <laughs> you know. Or rather, I don't think Steven Soderbergh has compromised his integrity. No. In any for way. For sure. Through this. Yeah, yeah. Let's move on to the second movie we're going to do, which is, uh, the night comes for us. You can set it up while I look up this wine. <laughs> the night comes for us. Let's fight our way out of this police bus. Yay. Uh, so The Night Comes For Us is an Indonesian film uh, directed by Timo Jahento, who previously had a few credits such as Headshot, and he was part of like a filmmaking filmmaking collective called the Mo Brothers and this is sort of part of the new wave of um, Indonesian action cinema sort of in the wake of the raid and this has two key cast members from the raid Eco Ways and Joe Taslim and I've never seen the raid so me either I'm curious to see it me too so the plot concerns uh this it's really it's really simple all right you do it okay uh so this um Ganedo Taslim, who plays a character named Ito, is like a member of this elite triad organization called the South Seas, right? Sixties, Sixties, uh, and he's like murdering a village because they stole money from the triad, uh, and he's like killed a bunch of people, and then uh, he kills a mother and uh, uh, father. But uh, when he he finds this young, quivering, uh, prepubescent girl. Um, he can't quite bring himself to shoot her and then decides to save her life and fight everyone who tries to kill her. And that's basically the plot of the film. Uh, there's, some more, it's more, there's more complications than that, but that's basically the driving force of it. Did, it, did I do it justice? That's, it's, it doesn't really matter that much. No. <laughs> yeah, the, the thing that this film is sort of centered around is um, Joe Taslam as, as Ito his relationship with a former friend played by Eco Wace. Mm-hmm. His name is Arian. As Arian. And they've both, they both joined the triads and they're yeah. 
but they're not the same level. But yeah, one of the reasons that he's so intent on killing Ito is that because he will become a sixties when he does so. So yeah, Ito has turned his back and betrayed the triads, and um, Arian's been sent to take him down, among other people. But their like their ultimate confrontation is, is sort of the heart of the film, I guess. Yeah. Um, and especially because they're both kind of superstars in their own right in Indonesian action cinema. Yeah, especially, I mean, I feel like Eco Elias has eclipsed him just a bit, just because he's, like, broken through and... Well, Joe Taslin was in The Fast and the Furious oh, was he, really? 6, I think. Yeah. Oh, I've seen that one. Oh, he's also in Star Trek Beyond. Yeah. But I feel like, um... Well, like, Eco, Eco Weiss was the face of the new school of Indonesian action cinema based on their Yeah, emotion. but I feel, like, I feel like Eco Elias has had, like, um, non-Indonesian movies that are, like, based around him to some degree. Like... Mile 22, for instance, and Beyond Skyline. So I think he's achieved a level of fame. It's a little outside of it, but I don't know. But they both they both become, to a degree, international stars. Yeah. So, like, it kind of makes sense to have a film where they're starring together and fighting one another. Yeah. Okay, anyway, so that's the film. Um, just to describe it a little bit further in terms of what type of action film it is, I guess if you've seen The Raid, you might know what to expect, but I guess this is... A little bit more uh, bloody and... And fucked up. And horror-inflected. Yeah. But it's very sort of like video game level E. Where yeah, it's very cartoony. The characters want to accomplish it's something. It's ultra-violent, but in a cartoony way. Yeah. Well, well they want to accomplish something. Like they have to get some money, for instance, or protect someone. They go to a specific location. They find a bunch of people using sort of the items that one would find in that location. And they move on to the next location to do the same thing. Level two is now there's a <laughs> yeah. bunch of guys. It's, 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 the, it's the kitchen level, you know? Yeah. So, yes. Uh, and yeah, as you said, this movie is like incredibly gory. Uh, but actually, it was a little less gory than I was expecting from reviews. So, so what did you, what did you think of The Night Comes for Us, yo? I got you again, motherfucker. Um, okay, so as you know, I do have an affinity for, I guess, this type of this broad type of action cinema but i i would i i would say not so much this specific type of action cinema uh-huh. so i guess i mean i'm i'm extrapolating a little bit because i haven't seen things like the raid and some of the other foundational films in this type of genre but there there's obviously a movement towards a more visceral style of martial arts movie that really puts the priority on impact and blood in fact as opposed to the old sort of Hong Kong style that I prefer. So I I'm, I'm guess I'm saying I prefer my martial arts movies to be balletic and bloodless, <laughs> um, if I'm being honest. This is the so, like, I don't that. care. I care more about the choreography and, like, the inventiveness of how they've staged something as opposed to just, like, that must have hurt or, wow, that was a, you know. So, but, I mean, they obviously can be inventiveness in the way they do the gore, and there are some inventive elements to the way they do it here. Yeah, for sure. But I would say this film does overstay its welcome somewhat. Mm. And uh, by the end, I found it kind of tedious. Oh, that's interesting. But it wasn't bad. Like, it was enjoyable uh, to an extent. I, I, I actually didn't find it that tedious, but I, I agree that some, I could see why you would find it tedious. That makes sense. Because like, a lot of the action sequences are pretty repetitious. I have some specific issues with some of the action sequences, but I'll, I'll, I might get to that. But what did you think overall? I quite enjoyed it. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't have anything deep to say about it, but, you know, 
It was very gory, which I enjoyed. And I do like the I do like the fact that like none of the characters like or the all the characters seem to like survive these like injuries, which I assume would be like mortal, and just keep on like going and like going and going. And I I like that it's not a it's not a film that's like afraid to show just like horrible gory stuff. And I like the fact that that ends up diluting the impact of the violence yeah, because sure. it, it's, it's so like ludicrous. It's so extreme yeah. and it, it goes beyond the point that anyone would be able to survive. Yeah. Yeah. That it becomes almost abstract. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and comical. It becomes this own weird, brutal dance of its, uh, of its own. Yeah. Let, let's the film becoming sort of, it has this like operatic tenor because it's just so like ludicrous, <laughs> which I quite liked. Um, but I mean, as like a narrative and a plot, like whatever, like who cares, <laughs> you know? And I, I guess everything surrounding the fight scenes I found a bit, like, self-serious and humorless that it was kind of... <laughs> but I kind of like the, the weird contrast between, like, the very, like, sort of saccharine and sincere, like, narrative that's going on and, like, just the insane, like, gore and, and violent stuff that's happening in the rest yeah. of the film. <laughs> like, the, like, the, like, they both sort of, like, work to undermine the other in a weird way. And I kind of enjoyed that as well. So... And- any any story along these lines in action movies about like the brotherhood and honesty yeah. and, and betrayal and loyalty <laughs> and whatever I couldn't give a shit about. No, me neither. <laughs> so, but that's I kind of like that they just under- kill each other. Come on, <laughs> but that's what they do. He kills them. <laughs> <laughs> that the fight scene with them is so much fun because <laughs> you're just like looking at the stuff. You're like, wow, how is this going to figure into it? <laughs> Like, he stabs him through the cheek with a a fucking box cutter. Like, what the fuck? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It it is very gruesome. There's, but, like, again, like, like there's that sequence where the one, like, lady, like, pulls her own finger off. Like, why why did you do that? (laughs) I I mean, speaking of, speaking of that part of the film, I guess, uh, it's, it's worth mentioning that this film revives the, uh, trope of the evil lesbians <laughs> yeah but i mean i think that, yeah i mean it's it's not like a great like obviously both of them are dispatched but like i don't know this is a film where like no one is a good person so it's kind of like okay and, like everyone dies too you know but no but that seemed like a callback to yeah yeah regressive um action movies of the past yeah um but i enjoyed both of their characters a lot so i guess i'm reading against the text uh, what I wanted to say about the fight scenes that I was a bit disappointed about, uh-huh. especially like it's now it's supposed to be visceral and, you know, turn it to 11, whatever these days, is they still fall back into the old trap of when they have like a room full of people fighting one guy, which they do several times in this film or, or close to that. They they fall back into the old hoary cliche of, of, of Hong Kong action cinema where they fight basically one at a time. So the guy just fights. Essentially, they form a queue and fight one after another instead of them all just jumping on top of him as you would in real life. So you get these awkward shots of, like, the foreground of the exciting fighting with the particular henchmen, and then there's people in the background just sort of shuffling back and forth. Wait, but there, there's, like, some... There's some exceptions to that, though. There's a little bit of exceptions, but when, when it shows, like, those... When it shows it badly, like it does occasionally... It, it, it sort of takes away from it a little bit because that's the thing that, I mean, back even back in the 80s that Jackie Chan upended, essentially. Uh-huh. I, I, don't, I don't really, it doesn't really bother me, to be honest. <laughs> it should. I mean, you know, obviously this film is like completely um, uh, divorced from reality, so 
I mean, I don't mean that as like a, a it'd be better for realism. I'm saying it's like it's better for the choreography and everything. I guess, looks, I guess so. It looks dodgy, and and you get really and this is this is literally something that Jackie Chan um, pioneered in a way because he, t- he there's a great documentary called My Stunts uh-huh. where he talks about his process, and he did talk about the fact that all the Hong Kong movies at the time and the action films at the time, the bad guys would just stand around in the background and have to figure out ways to look cool and menacing without actually doing anything. And it always looked awkward. And he like had, he famously had fight scenes in which he's literally fighting like five people at once. Like one punch, that guy, one punch, that guy, kicking the other guy and stuff. And they only did that a little bit here and they should have done that a bit more. Eh, didn't bother me. The bastards. Uh, I really like the sequence where um, he grabs one of the guys and it's like using of his body armor against the other guys who are slashing at him. <laughs> I definitely enjoy that this type of film exists and that there is this yeah. sort of Southeast Asian renaissance in martial and, arts films. Yeah. Uh, like, of course, in Thailand as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was a good time. I don't know if I, I know if I have much more deep things to say about it, but uh, uh, basically we lived up to my expectations of being just a really crazy and violent uh, action movie. So, yeah, there you go. Um, I think there are better examples of this style. I'm sure there is, but, you know, this is sort of a new, new flavor for me, so. Yeah, I could never, I mean, I wonder, I wonder how the raid compares. So do you have, do you have anything else to say about these movies? Probably not. Nope. Okay. So, bonus features, bonus features, bonus features. Is that, is that a good version of the song? That's perfect. I haven't really watched much, um. So it'll be brief. Uh, so let's see. Uh, <coughs> I watched a film called Hannigan Tammy, which is a Nobuhiku Obayashi film. His most recent film, which was released in 2018. Uh, very strange and enjoyable. Definitely worth a watch if you can check it down. It is long, though, so I'll warn you to carve out a few hours if you decide you want to watch it. Um, this is sort of like anti-war, uh, almost fabulish film that is really odd, as you might expect from the director of House, but uh, has this very sort of, um, I don't know, it builds this very uh, emotional and sort of devastating peak at the end, which I quite liked. It has this one technique where it like, just constantly uses like clips of stuff as like, uh, of the movie previously to like, rhyme with events that are happening currently. And at first you're kind of like, wow, this is like a I, I, I got it. Like, I remember this callback, but they just keep, he keeps on like doing it over and over again to the point where it's like this almost, I don't know, it works in a way. It's good. Um, then I watched, I rewatched a film called uh, Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, uh, which I, you've seen. We did an episode about, I don't know. <laughs> I can't believe you rewatched that again. I watched it for class. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Yeah. But I actually liked it better the second time, I think. Why was that? Um, I don't know. I just, I, I was really focused on like the crowd photography. I thought it was really impressive. So. Okay. Yeah. It but was well shot, yeah. Yeah. Um, you should go back and rewatch Don't Look Back. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then I watched a film called Oedo Battle Angel, uh, which is like the you know big uh, blockbuster from producer James Cameron and was directed by Robert Rodriguez, who I who was directed one of my least favorite movies of all time, which is the second Sin City movie. Um, so I didn't have high expectations, but uh, ended up quite enjoying myself. It's pretty stupid, but... Uh, in an enjoyable way, um, and uh, spoiler alert, the uh, love interest in it actually gets killed twice. Twice. 
um, in a pretty hilarious way. Anyway, and then finally I rewatched uh, Ley Lines for the audio commentary. But uh, since you hate hearing about that, I won't mention go into detail. So yeah, you motherfucker. Okay, you can go. Oh, okay. See ya. Because you actually have bonus features this week for I the do. first time in like three weeks. <laughs> and I, I did forget to mention the bonus features I had on the previous episode, so I'll mention them now quickly. Okay, go for it. Um, so one film I caught up with was a cock and bull story. Uh huh. Which is the Michael yeah, Michael Winterbottom. Michael Winterbottom film. Winterbottom. Based upon Tristan Shandy. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which is a novel I finally finished, and that's the reason I watched the film at that time. I've been carrying around it for a long time and only making like scant progress on it, and then I decided to finish reading it, so I did. <laughs> How was the novel? Uh, it's a really good novel. I, I like it a lot. Anyway, so a, a cock and bull story essentially is attempting to film a, a pretty much unfilmable book and that's the whole point of it. it's kind of like i guess there's a parallel to something like adaptation yeah where it's like oh we can't film this book that doesn't tell its story so effectively it becomes uh the trip because this is the origin <laughs> of the trip uh because what's his name's also in it rob Bryanson. it's essentially this is where it started so the shoot the versions of themselves that they play in the sequences in this where they're Mm-hmm. behind the scenes is essentially what they end up doing in the trip and that's where it came from obviously it's michael winterbottom again just following on from that so that in that sense it's worth watching and and it's kind of funny that it basically gives up on adapting the film in any sense and it's just mm-hmm. focusing on steve coogan really and i like how it's kind of brutal about um i don't know if you know much about his because we didn't it didn't necessarily trickle to australia nor America, I don't think. But he's like a notorious tabloid figure for his um, various drug-fueled and sex-fueled shenanigans <laughs> for a long period of time. I think he's calmed down now. But they sort of make fun of that quite directly in this. Part of the story is like trying to... of, of a cock and bull story is them trying to cover up an incident he had with a prostitute who is going to the press... And his his PR team are like meeting with him to throw water on it. Mm. Kind of kind of um, Hugh Grantish. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that, but that's kind of directly reflective of stuff that was actually happening in Steve Coogan's life prior uh-huh. to this point. So it's kind of enjoyable on that level. It's not necessarily a successful adaptation of the book, but it can't really. But maybe goes for the spirit of the of it. That's the that's kind of the point. Is like the book itself frames itself as it's going to be the story of the narrator's life. And it barely gets to him being born. Um, so this is kind of a joke on that by saying we're going to be a film of this book and it never really gets around to being a film of the book. It just does its own thing. Uh-huh. It's worth watching. It's not entirely successful, but it's funny and enjoyable. I also watched Comic Book Confidential, which is a 1988 like made-for-television, I think, profile of comic creators. Actually quite well done. It features quite a lot of stuff about the alternative comic book scene, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm sure it's been eclipsed by other resources by now. Uh, anyway, uh, the last film I saw uh-huh. was uh, a film that you were a little lukewarm on. <laughs> nope, nope. <laughs> if Beale uh, Street could talk, right? Uh, yeah, no, no. I was. I, I think you uh, mis misheard my uh, enthusiastic love for it. Uh, you hated as, it? As, yeah, yeah. I, I, opposite of love. It was my least favorite film of last year. 
No, it's great. It's a great film that you gave three stars for some inexplicable reason. Now, did I give it three and a half stars just to troll you so that now I can reveal that I actually loved it? Or uh, probably not. Was actually mixed on it? I don't know. You'll have to tell me. Oh, it's the latter. I was actually mixed on it. Yeah. I wanted well, to like suck. it more than I did, uh, basically. There are some really lovely moments in it. I, I like. I like the fact that he's got a very distinctive and cohesive visual style and approach. Uh-huh. Um, particularly the way he shoots faces, um, which has a, a really great immediate intimacy, uh-huh. um, which I think is very distinctive and effective in certain places. Yeah. But I did feel with a lot of sequences that I was being nudged a little bit uh, about how I'm supposed to feel about things. And like that this okay. is supposed to be a lyrical moment and this is supposed to be this. Um, and the fact that I could feel that made me resist to some extent. Okay. And also the fact that I don't really, I feel, I don't feel great about drawing a comparison to Spike Lee just because he's another prominent African-American filmmaker. But yeah. um, I think there is a crossover here, especially because this is a more overtly... Um, political film i guess than moonlight uh-huh. may have been i don't know uh, at least in the sense of dealing with i mean instead of uh, like civil rights issues yeah sure no but this had some stylistic similarities with spike lee in a, in a couple of spots very different approach i think overall but um, yeah, like people facing a, the camera yeah the, 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 it, it does a couple of bits where it shows people facing the camera and in a way that's not really in the diegetic text of the film uh-huh. Um, in a similar manner to the way that Spike Lee does that sort of thing. Yeah. So so there were elements of this where it, f- it felt like a tasteful version of a Spike Lee film. I don't, mm-hmm. Again, I feel bad saying that type of thing. But, it, like, the fact that um, Spike Lee is so inconsistent kind of makes him more interesting. And this feels like a maybe a safer yeah. approach. You know, I don't, I don't know. Sense. Uh, I mean, it's definitely not quite as, like... Um... Totally wonky as a lot of Spike Lee films are, mm. but I, I don't know if I would say that. It was, I, I would. I definitely don't agree that it's like a safe film. No, no. I mean, no, I wouldn't say it's a safe <laughs> film, but it feels like I don't know. I kind of miss the brashness that. that <laughs> you just wanted to be a Spike Lee movie. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to be a Spike Lee joke. <laughs> um, but yeah, <laughs> but I don't know. There were some things that I just um, resisted. So the portrayal of this central couple uh-huh. as this sort of uh perfect saintly couple um i found a bit bland yeah. there's like one moment of shading where they have an argument and other than that they just i don't know it's just this perfect relationship and they well, uh, since you i think i think i think you're a bit bland <laughs> so <laughs> and obviously it's based on the baldwin novel so i don't yeah, I don't know if it's a part like an allegorical relationship too. I think. Mm. But I mean, I mean, I found that kind of like a bit bland. Like I wasn't, I didn't find it particularly moving because it lacked much um, dynamics in terms of a normal relationship. It was, it just was one thing really. Yeah, but in, I mean, in a way, it's kind of like um, the fact is that like, they're not allowed to have a normal relationship, right? So. And the sequence in Puerto Rico. Uh, it was sort of the heart of the film to me. And then after that, it felt like I didn't really know where to go or how to resolve it. And it kind of just petered out a little bit for me. I disagree, but I, I can 
I can accept. I I could I could accept your uh, criticisms even if I don't agree with them. Um, what do you think about my favorite scene of the film, which is the bit where um, uh, Brian Tyree Henry comes in and as uh, one of Fonzie, who's like the main characters, uh, the main male characters of old friends, and talks about his experiences in in prison. Yeah, I didn't love that. Whoa. Okay. Well, uh, that you're canceled. <laughs> and then, so this is this sort of gets at my problem. Actually, this is the main uh, thing I wanted to say, aside from all my specific issues uh, that I just went through. Oh my god! Is it all felt a little bit too calibrated? Yeah, whatever. To what I was supposed to feel about everything, and and how it was. I don't know. It was. It just okay. felt like feel this now. Uh, uh. <laughs> that's an all. That's an all movies are though. It felt like latter day Simpsons trying to make me laugh. <laughs> That's but every movie is 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 calibrated to make you feel and, and think certain things. Exactly, things. and it's the way you disguise that illusion. Okay, it's the whole art okay. of filmmaking. I thought it was disi- disguised perfectly well, so I don't know what to tell you. You're blind. <laughs> you're you're a cynic. But yeah, I, I think a lot of my issues were liking it enough that I wanted it to be better. If I can be most polite about it like i wouldn't have bothered to detail all these things if i didn't really care or or nothing um worked for me i think it's because there are some really great sequences in this yeah like the like the entire movie for instance i i, I want to see moonlight i do want to see that i'm curious as to what my what my reaction will be to that it's good actually i think i i like this more than i like moonlight but i do like moonlight a lot because um, I actually think Moonlight suffers from uh, the like sort of <laughs> lack of subtlety you've identified here more than this does. Okay. Um, because there, there's a there's some sequences in it that are very just like I don't know, yeah, overdetermined and such in Moonlight. Anyway, I do think that he will make his masterpiece down the track. I can see that. Well, uh, I think he already has. <laughs> So there you go. To me, it's like like three or four really standout scenes that are pretty faultlessly executed, and then the rest of the film doesn't support them as well as I wanted it to. But there, like there, there are some really, especially I think the first half of the film I really liked more than the second half, um, with the exception of wherever that Puerto Rico scene fell. Okay, is that it? That's it. Oh, man. Oh.